Well, if you would, turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. Our text this morning is Romans 5, verses 18 through 21. That is the text we've had for our assurance of pardon for several weeks now. And at last, we get to come to this crescendo at the end of Romans 5 as we wrap up not only that chapter, but this morning we're wrapping up the first part of our Romans series before we begin our time in Micah for Advent. And while you're turning there, I'd like to share with you the key truth that we're going to explore in this text this morning. And the key truth is this. Christ's finished work sets us free from the tyranny of sin and death and brings us into God's kingdom of abundant grace. So let's see that this morning in Romans 5, verses 18 through 21. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but... Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So as I was saying, as we come to the end of Romans 5, you could think of if Romans is a symphony, this is a crescendo moment in the symphony. A lot of motifs that Paul has been developing, they are coming together in these four brief and compact verses to help us see the goodness of the gospel, the gospel that Paul said at the beginning that he is not ashamed of and that he calls us to to stand on in confidence and hope in Christ. We're gonna see Paul draw things together about sin and the law and Christ and Adam and condemnation and justification, life and death and God's abundant grace. These all come together in these verses. And to help key our hearts in to be prepared to to benefit from this passage, I'd like us to consider a question together. The question is this, how do you try to handle your imperfection? How do you try to handle your imperfection? Most of us have some way in which we try, (coughs) excuse me, which try to run or hide or both from our imperfection. Some of us will turn to work to compensate for the things in us that we don't like. You know, if I can build up a good performance, a good product, a good reputation, you look at that. You won't look at the things that I hate about myself. Sometimes we turn to entertainment to distract ourselves because, you know, we just can't make that constant buzzing of our imperfection go away. And so, you know, I can drown myself in Ted Lasso, The Office, YouTube, whatever it is, at least it makes the pain of my imperfection numb. Or we'll turn to books. If you're a go-getter, you turn to books, you turn to YouTube, you turn to podcasts, You're looking for a new technique, a new life hack that's going to help you smooth away the edges of the stuff you don't like about yourself. In fact, when I was watching the World Series, um, you know, go Braves. I'm an Orioles fan at heart, but I was happy for the Braves. I'm soft on them because they're not the Phillies. Um, But watching the World Series, I saw this commercial like 10 times for the new Google Pixel 6. And one of the things they boasted about with this, if not like the chief feature, was that with this phone's camera, you can take a picture and you can tap the screen to erase people in the background. So your selfies can really be all about yourself. And I mean, we laugh, but it's like, if we had that app, think about it, if you had that app for your life, where you could touch a screen and all the stuff in the background that you don't like, that gets in the way of the you you want the world to see, we would download it and we'd use it on the daily. Because although we know that nobody is perfect, we do not want people to know the particular ways in which we are not perfect. And so as silly as it may seem, I think in a sense we all actually agree with Miley Cyrus 
in one of her old songs from when she was Hannah Montana, like when I was a teenager. And the song is, you know, just titled Nobody's Perfect. And if it's going in your head, that's good because you need to hear this because I think it's the heartbeat of our lives way too much. And she's, she's saying, nobody's perfect. I got to work it again and again till I get it right. And if I mess it up sometimes, nobody's perfect. And if we're not careful, we can come to the conclusion, if not in your stated professed theology, but in the way you live, which is much more important, you can think that that is what it means to live under grace. You can think that all grace is, is unlimited retries for you to work again and again to get it right. And if that is all the gospel is, then we are, we are doomed. And what Paul is gonna tell us this morning is that's not the gospel, that's a false gospel. That's the artificial grace of you getting unlimited retries, whereas the abundant grace of God, Paul is telling us this morning, stands on the finished work of Jesus. What Paul wants us to see is that in Christ, we have rest and we have joy on the foundation of his finished work. And that's because then we belong not to the tyranny of sin and death any longer, but to the kingdom of God's abundant grace. So we wanna see that this morning because so many of us are living as if it's all on us and we've just gotta use that next retry to get it right. And Paul's gonna say that's not true, rest in Christ. So let's start out then and dig into verses 18 and 19 together. As you look at verse 18, you see again, Paul is pulling no punches. He's summing things up, that's why he says therefore he's pulling it all together. And he explains, he says, it's not just that you're not perfect. The bad news is worse than that. You're condemned in Adam. You are dead in your sin apart from Christ. You cannot save yourself. And remember, he has been contrasting Adam and Christ because these two figures are the two that God has entered into covenant with on behalf of all that they represent. We all are represented by Adam as, as soon as we're conceived. Adam was not just the first human that God made. He was the first representative of all humanity. He was, if you like, our first king. And so as went Adam, so would go all of us. And therefore, because, as Paul says, Adam trespassed, he committed a transgression, and he disobeyed God, his sin is our sin because we are connected to him in covenant. And we don't like that. As Cameron reminded us last week, we're all rugged individualists. We all want to think we belong to ourselves. We don't want somebody else's decisions to define us. We really want only our own decisions to define us, and really by that we just mean our good decisions. We don't want the bad things we do to define us either. And it's a bitter pill to swallow, but as Cameron reminded us last week from Paul's words here, there's actually good news in this. Because if you're already condemned in Adam, that means you're already at rock bottom. Your sin can't take you any lower. It can mess up your life in a lot of ways and lead to lots of consequences, but your eternal status before God in Adam is as already low as it can be. You're condemned. And what that means then is if Christ came to undo Adam's curse, of course, he's undoing your sin as well. There's good news in the bad news, Paul says. But it's interesting because Paul doesn't really spend a lot of time defending the fact that we're condemned in Adam. We may not like that in the 21st century in America, but Paul almost seems like not to care about our frustration with that. And it's not that he doesn't necessarily care about that. What he's saying is don't get distracted by that but look at the good news connected to this bad news. Yes, it's bad news that you're condemned in Adam, but it's gospel better news that you have justification and life in Christ. You can't have one without the other, Paul's saying. And so that's why in these verses here, he compares and contrasts Adam's trespass and Christ's act of righteousness, Adam's disobedience and Christ's obedience. And he does it quickly. 
And for that reason, we need to slow down. Because if you've grown up in the church or you've, you've been exposed to the Bible for a long time in your life, you can zip past this. You can think, well, Paul's summarizing, right? Like, I know this. I've got these facts down. I know the story of the fall. I know the story of the cross and the resurrection. I got this. But we need to pause here because Paul is trying to draw our attention to see this is good news for you now. And so it's helpful to really think about some of the parallels between Adam and Christ, to look at what was going on in the circumstances of this trespass and of Christ's obedience. So think about it with me. Think about back to Genesis 2 and 3. Where was Adam when he disobeyed God? He's in Eden. He is in the paradise of Eden, surrounded by every good thing. You don't get a better set of circumstances than Adam had. If ever there was a place where it would be, you know, you would think it would be easy to obey God, it would have been there. And yet that's the place where he disobeyed. And think about Jesus on the other hand. Where did he obey God? It was not in Eden. It was in hostile territory, surrounded by sinners like us. Sinners who would spit in his face, who would rip out his beard, who would mock him from the moment he began his ministry, opposing him, ridiculing him, blaspheming him. And it was there in that hostile territory that he obeyed. Similarly, in the garden, God had given Adam every tree that was good to eat, except one. And he gave that as a gift of his goodness to Adam. And in Christ's case, God gave him one tree. And it was not a tree of which he would eat fruit, but it was a tree upon which he'd be hung to die a cursed death. The contrast gets bigger, you see. And then Adam disobeyed God's one command that he gave him. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Why? Because Adam wanted to be his own God. He wanted to say, no, I'm not going to listen to God to determine what is good and evil. I'm going to figure it out on my own. I'll be my own man, my own God. Whereas Christ, as Paul tells us in Philippians 2, who is the Son of God, did not count his equality with God a thing to be grasped and to hold on to and hold over us, but he emptied himself becoming human, becoming a servant who is obedient to the point of death on a cross. The contrast gets even bigger. And lastly, Adam chased life on his own terms and instead condemned himself and all of humanity under the tyranny and weight and burden of sin and death. But Christ embraced death on the Father's terms for us so that we could receive in him justification and life. All who would call upon his name in faith receive those things. So this is what Paul means for us to remember when he's comparing and contrasting Adam and Christ. There's a big difference there, and the difference exalts the goodness of Jesus and his person and his work of redemption. Because in every way, Adam took the shortcut. He took the shortcut that Satan offered him, and we all suffer for it. And yet in every way, Jesus stayed the course. He resisted Satan's temptation to the death, for us, and in every way, all who receive him have life now. We have freedom. And it's not just the case that Jesus obeyed where Adam and we disobeyed, but he also paid the full cost of our disobedience. This is critical for us to remember. In verse 19, his obedience makes everyone who believe in him righteous. But that is because, as Paul says elsewhere in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, that God made him to be sin who knew no sin. When God, when, when God made Christ sin, what that meant was Jesus identified with your sin. He took the worst of your sins that haunts you and he said, that's mine on the cross and I'm taking it to the grave and I will leave it there when I rise again. He was made your sin. He was made my sin. He was made our sin so that 
we could be made in him the righteousness of God. That's what Paul means in verse 19 when he says, by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. By Christ's death and resurrection, our sin has no say over us anymore, and we are defined by him. This is good news for us. And Charles Hodge, one of the famous Princetonian theologians, he helps us see that this is the heart and core of the gospel. Hodge writes in his commentary on Romans that the design of the apostle being to illustrate the nature and to confirm the certainty of our justification, it is the leading doctrine of this passage that our acceptance with God is founded neither on our faith nor our good works, but on the obedience and righteousness of Christ, which to us is a free gift. This is the fundamental doctrine of the gospel. So what Hodge is telling us is that the gospel is not just a bit of life advice for you to try again. The gospel is not that you're justified, that you're declared right and perfect in God's sight as if you had never sinned because you have strong faith, because your works are finally getting good enough. No, you are justified. You are declared righteous and perfect in God's sight because of Christ's perfect and finished work of obedience and righteousness for us. And so if that work is finished, if Christ has paid it all, if he's risen from the dead and his work to secure our justification is completed, then what is left for us to do is to receive it. And in receiving it, not just to say, I believe that and it's true, and then put it on a shelf and leave it alone, but to receive it and find rest and joy standing upon that foundation. And this is critical because, again, let's think back to the Adam and Christ parallels and contrast. Think about Genesis 3. After Adam sins and he breaks that covenant, think about the aftermath as God talks to the serpent and to Eve and to Adam and explains the consequences of this broken covenant. To the, to the serpent, of course, he promises that Christ will come and crush him. To the woman who is meant to be the mother of all the living, he says this beautiful gift in God's design of her would now be marked by great pain. And to Adam, who was created to care for and stored the garden, to work the ground and, and, and make it blessed and, and, and fuller and richer, his work would now be marked by toil, a specter of meaninglessness and frustration and hopelessness. And so pain and toil mark life in Adam, life in this fallen world. And yet Jesus comes, and what does he tell us he came to bring us on the foundation of his finished work? Well, Matthew 11, he says, he has come to give us rest, rest from the toil we feel in Adam, rest in him upon his finished work. And in John 16, he tells us that he comes so that we can ask anything in his name. Why? So that our joy in him would be full. He comes to give us joy in the midst of the pain that we feel in this fallen world. So Jesus came not just to pay for your sin as if that wasn't enough, but in paying for it then to give us the rest from the toil that we need and the, the joy that we are afraid that sometimes pain will preclude us from. And that's important because I imagine for a lot of us, the reason we struggle to rest in life is because we're always feeling like there's something else we gotta do. Not just with your nine to five job, but in your personal life. Like I can't enjoy life as God's child because I got too much messed up in my heart that I'm hiding. And yet the finished work of Christ says otherwise. So the question for us to ask ourselves is how can and where can Christ's finished work bring you into deeper rest and joy in him? And as you think about that question this Lord's Day Sabbath, don't hide your heart from the Lord. The place where you feel most defeated, where, you know, as we heard last week that in Christ we get to live the victorious life upon Jesus' victory, 
the place where you feel most defeated, where you feel most exhausted, most hopeless, go there with this question because that is the place where you need Christ's finished and perfect work, where you need to remember again the goodness, the freshness, the beauty of the gospel. And this applies to our lives in, in countless ways. For example, consider marriage for those of you who are married. If you are hitting a rough patch in your marriage and you're struggling to figure out how to make it last, recognize that you don't have to just fix your marriage to the point where then you can at last find rest and joy in life. Christ is your foundation. It's not that you or your spouse have to be good enough in order to stand steady. No, you stand on the foundation together of Christ's perfect and finished work. You don't have to hide the fact that you're imperfect and you don't get to attack your spouse for being imperfect. You both stand on Christ's perfection. And what that means, it's on a rock steady foundation that you get to build up your marriage as a sacred canopy. And when there are times where you find rot under the floorboards and you gotta pull some stuff up, you can do so with great confidence that the foundation will hold because the foundation is not you or your spouse, it's Christ. And so you can have hope that he will help you rebuild. And parents, think about how this changes our perspective on parenting. In, in youth ministry, in reading books, articles, and things like that, one of the things they constantly talk about is that for whatever reason, universally in our culture today, parents feel like the stakes have never been higher. We feel like everybody's telling us that you have to be perfect in your parenting, even though there's no billboard out there saying that. It's just the air we breathe. And yet your job as a parent is not to get your kids as close to perfect as possible. It's not to hand them as many perfect opportunities so they can have the perfect shot at getting into a good college to get a perfect job someday so they can meet a perfect spouse and so on and so forth. That's not on you. And it's also not on you to find the perfect thing to say when they realize that you're not perfect and that they're not perfect. And they don't know what to do. Your calling as a parent is to stand on the foundation of Christ's finished and perfect work, to recognize that when you make mistakes, it's not over because the foundation holds, to recognize that in the good and in the bad, when your kids love you, when they hate you, you stand on that foundation and you point them to the same because Christ, his foundation is big enough for your whole family and all the mess you have, and it's not over because his work is finished. And for all of us, if you're not a parent or you're not married or if you are, Think about how this changes the way we go about our decisions. So many of us experience on a regular basis just like decision fatigue and like analysis paralysis. And a part of that is because, you know, we all shop on Amazon. You know, Christmas season's coming, everyone's about to buy gifts. And it's stressful because you have a million options, like literally millions of options to pick from. And what that does to us is we, we feel like, well, I've got to do more research. I've got to make sure I buy the perfect car, make the right maintenance decision, buy the perfect house, go to the perfect college students you feel this in everything because what happens is we start thinking, well, what if I make the wrong decision? And then what if that leads to this wrong thing happening? And then my life is over and, you know, I'm only 22. What then? You know, but that happens. We feel it. And you don't outgrow it once you're not 22 anymore. And so what we have to remember when we're making decisions that seem as mundane as choosing a type of toothpaste, you know, when you feel that anxiety crop up, remember that decision is not the basis of your life. The basis of your life is the foundation of Christ's finished and perfect work. You can stand on him, and that foundation can take a decision that feels far from perfect that may even be wrong. That's not gonna define you. You stand in Christ, and therefore you have hope, and you can find rest and joy, even when your decision just feels ordinary and far from stellar. It's okay. Christ defines you. 
And so I urge you, you know, consider that question and lean in because his work is finished and it's perfect and it's full and it's good. And as Paul wants us to see as we turn back to the text and look at verses 20 through 21, the finished work of Christ brings us into a place. It's not just like it's the finished work of Christ as this foundation kind of standing out in the open and you have to figure everything else out. You're brought all the way home into God's kingdom where you now belong, a kingdom of abundant grace. So that's what we're gonna see in these next two verses. And it may strike you though that at first, Paul in the first half of verse 20, he says, now the law came in to increase the trespass. And it almost feels like the law kind of came out of nowhere here. Like why is Paul bringing the law up now? Well, remember, he's mentioned the law like this here and there throughout Romans. He mentioned it in chapters two and three when he was telling us that Jew and Gentile, we all are dead in sin. And he was telling the Jews, yes, you have the law. You know God's righteous standard. You heard the law, but having and hearing the law does not justify you. At the end of the great crescendo or the the great climax of human sinfulness in Romans 3, remember Paul said very clearly in verses 19 and 20, no one, no one will be justified by works of the law. He said something similar in verse or in chapter four as well. And now he's returning to the law here. Why? Well, think about it. He's been talking about Adam and Christ. He's been summarizing all of human history under these two men and their actions, their covenant representation. And if you were a Jew, you would be wondering, wait a minute, Paul. You left out the entire middle of the story where all the action happens. You left out Moses and the law. To put it in perspective, if you're a Star Wars fan, that's like talking about episode four and episode six and leaving out Empire Strikes Back. You would be like, what happened? You left out the middle of the story. It makes no sense. Why is Paul doing this? Well, what Paul is doing and what he will do much more fully in chapter seven is he's showing the Jews who thought that the law was given so that they could work at it again and again and show that they were righteous. He's saying that's not why the law came. No, look at the text with me, verse 20. The law came in to increase the trespass. As he said earlier in chapter five and verse 13, sin was in the world after Adam's fall before the law was given to Moses at Mount Sinai, but it wasn't counted. In other words, the magnifying glass and the spotlight of the law wasn't around to show Israel like, hey, you're actually this sinful and your sin is this bad. It was easier to hide it. And the law came in not so that they could have a recipe for their own perfection, but to show them how dire their circumstances in Adam really were. And so Paul has to make that point now to remind us that the law came in to show us how much we need God's grace. And that's where he goes in the text. He says, the law came in to increase the trespass, not to increase our own performance. But then he says, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And we need to hear that because how do you respond when someone points out your sin or that you're wrong? Like we bristle, we get defensive. Why? Because we don't think this is how the story goes. We think that where something increases or points out our sin, then there's a hammer of judgment following to strike us down. And yet what Paul says is that's not how redemptive history goes. God reveals our sinfulness so that he can bring in his grace through Christ. And I find the word choice here fascinating. Notice he doesn't say where sin increased, grace increased more. No, what's he say? He says where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. He uses a bigger, better, richer word, grace abounded, in order to talk about the fact that grace is much bigger than sin. It's much more powerful. And that's important for us to think about 
Because if we're not careful, we can sometimes come to the conclusion that in the Old Testament with the law, sin was a really big deal. Like if you touch the Ark of the Covenant when you're not supposed to, you might drop dead, you don't know. It seems really scary, seems to be very intense. And then in the New Testament, it seems like, well, because of Jesus, maybe sin's not a big deal anymore, right? Like I'm forgiven, I don't need to worry about sin, it's fine. Grace makes sin no big deal. But that's not true. Grace in no way downplays or minimizes the sinfulness of sin. What grace does is it recognizes how, um, how magnificent and, and depraved sin truly is, and it meets it with something greater, something costly, not cheap, in Christ, in his suffering and obedience on our behalf. We have to recognize that grace is not cheap. It is costly, not to us, because it's a free gift to us, but it was costly to Jesus because of what he suffered for us. That means when we talk about God's grace, we should never tune out as we are prone to do in Reformed uh, circles because we're like, we're all about the doctrines of grace. We don't always live it because I think sometimes we treat it cheaply. And so we need to hear it is abundant because it is rich and lavish because of who Christ is. And so as we think about that, what we see Paul do as he's talking about grace here is in verse 21, he starts tying these things together. He says, look, as sin once reigned in death, now grace also might reign through righteousness, Christ's righteousness, leading us to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And notice that he talks about the reign of sin and the reign of grace. And that's very interesting language because that is royal kingdom language. That's the language of kingship. When he says sin has a certain reign, it's saying sin is a tyrant who reigns in death. When he talks about grace reigning, he's talking about God reigning us in his grace upon the basis of Christ's righteousness. There are two kingdoms, Paul says. And when we're dead in Adam, when we're dead in our sin, and we are languishing under the tyranny of sin and death. And sin is funny because it will let you think that you're a pretend prince or princess in its kingdom as long as that's keeping you blind to the fact that it's leading you to your grave. Sin is no problem letting you think you're the one calling the shots in its kingdom because that's keeping you blinded to who you really are meant to be as an image bearer. And yet what Paul says is that though sin reigns in death, deceptively or not, in Christ we are brought into a better kingdom. We are brought into the kingdom of God's abundant grace. And what that means is that this is where you belong if you're a Christian. To say that you are now under the reign of grace is to say that grace, God's abundant grace, belongs to you because you belong to him. And that's important for us to recognize because that defines the rhythms of our life. What that means for us is that we get to run to God's throne because we belong to his kingdom. We get to talk to the king through Jesus Christ who is leading us to eternal life. And in every time of trouble, we get to, as Hebrews 4 says, come to that throne for grace and mercy to meet our needs. And that's something we talk about at our church a lot. Which way do you run when you sin. And we talk about it a lot because this really is the front line of your discipleship. That is the barometer of your, your, your grasp of the gospel. Do you know what it means to live in God's grace? And so I think an important question for us to consider, kind of backing up from that one, one step and lifting up the floorboards a little bit, is this question. What holds you back from running to God when you sin? Because none of us, of course, do it perfectly. And it would be easy to say, well, you know, of course I don't perfectly run to God. I don't always go quickly. Um, but that's just because, you know, I'm still struggling against sin. But recognize if you're in God's kingdom of grace, 
you have the freedom to actually ask the question, well, what is holding you back? You don't need to be scared of answering that question. And it's a question you need to ask because we all have patterns and things in our hearts that hold us back from receiving the goodness of the gospel. For some of us, it, what holds us back might be very closely connected to our answer from the first question. How do you try to handle your imperfection? Because often the way you try to handle your imperfection is very much the same way that you try to handle your sin on your own. For example, if you loathe yourself and you're constantly trying to build up that reputation so people look at it and not you, that's probably how you're gonna deal with your sin. You're gonna turn to yourself to just work harder, to downplay, to deal with it, to you know, show God that you're really sorry and you're only gonna look to yourself, not Christ. If you deflect by pointing out other people's mistakes, you're not even gonna know of your own need because you're too busy nitpicking others to recognize you've got stuff going on where you need God's grace at his throne. And so that's one level of answering this question, but recognize that's actually only at the level of behavior. And something we've been talking about in Romans 5 is the importance of getting beneath our behavior to our character, to our hearts. And when we think about this question, what is holding us back from running to God's throne when we sin? Oftentimes in the depths of our hearts, what holds us back is that we don't really believe that God rules over us by his grace. We don't think that his grace is truly ours in Jesus. We think maybe, even though we never articulate it like this, that there might be some sort of fine print that you just check the box to um, on the gospel and that there are a bunch of exclusions to grace and that the sin that you just can't stand and you can't seem to find relief from is in that fine print and therefore you've written yourself out of the kingdom and that holds you back. Or you think that you're not really clothed in Christ's perfect righteousness. You feel like the rags of your sin is what defines you and you feel like anytime you go to God's throne, you're underdressed and out of place. And Dane Ortland describes this posture very well, and he helps us navigate this in his book, Gentle and Lowly, which I know is a book many, many folks in our church are reading right now. Listen to what he says. He says, we might feel a little bashful or uncomfortable or even guilty in emphasizing God's tenderness as intensively as his wrath. Let me pause there. What he's saying is, we know God hates sin. And at least among Christians, if not among unbelievers, we're okay talking about God in his wrath opposes our sin. He can't stand it. But we feel guilty or bashful, Ortland says, when it comes to talking about God loves showing grace because we're immediately worried like, oh, is that gonna give us free reign for sin or, or what's gonna happen there? But Ortland, notice what he continues to say. He says, the Bible feels no such discomfort. Consider Romans 5.20, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Therefore, the guilt and shame of those in Christ is ever outstripped by his abounding grace. When we feel as if our thoughts, words, and deeds are diminishing God's grace toward us, those sins and failures are in fact causing it to surge forward all the more. That is what we need to believe. That is what we need in our hearts in order to recognize the true goodness of the gospel. If we are doubting that, of course we're gonna hesitate to come and yet, if you're beating yourself up for hesitating to come to the throne of grace, recognize that that's not what God wants for you. Grace isn't just a thing or a spiritual commodity that he hands out. Grace is actually the posture of God's own heart towards you in Jesus. Grace is God giving you himself in Christ. He does not withhold his heart from you. And so the question for us is, why would we withhold our hearts from him? He gives us himself in Christ, and he delights in doing it. And that should draw us to his throne. 
And another way to think about it this morning, as we'll get to come to the table in a moment, is consider the fact that God doesn't just invite you to come to his throne, which you could consider maybe like the front door of his heavenly throne room. Like you can come to the throne, but he also brings you to his table. Like if you came to my house for the holidays and I just greeted you at the door and you, know, you gave me some cookies and I gave you some cookies, like that's great, it was really friendly. But if I invite you inside and say, hey, come, come join me for this dinner we made, that's a much more welcoming and intimate setting. You belong in that relationship, in that friendship. And so when God invites us to the table like this, he's reminding us, you belong to my kingdom of abundant grace. This is where you should be because you are mine. And so remember that. And then as we are nourished by that table, that encourages us throughout the week to when we are in times of need, when we are feeling lost, when we are feeling guilty, when we are scared, to run to his throne, not full of shame or fear, but trusting that he is not withholding his heart, but he is giving us himself in Christ. And so as we consider these things and reflect on them and we wrap up our time in Romans 5, 18 through 21, we see that it teaches us that Christ's finished work sets us free from the tyranny of sin and death. You do not belong to those things. They do not define you. But instead, you are now brought into God's kingdom of abundant grace where you belong. And what that means on the daily is that you are free to rest and find joy upon the foundation of Christ's finished work. And you are free to run quickly to God's throne of grace in every time of trouble and need. Amen? Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, Lord, we give you thanks that you love us far more than we realize. Lord, that you would send your son to die in our place, to obey where we disobeyed with Adam. Well, Lord, we can not hardly fathom it. And yet we, we pray, Lord, and ask that you would help us to continue to receive in the depths of our hearts the finished and perfect work of Christ. But Lord Jesus, show us the places where we need to taste and see the rest and the joy that is already ours in you. Holy Spirit, give us wisdom in that and help us to recognize that we do indeed belong to your kingdom of abundant grace, O oh God. We're not here with a work visa. We're not here as visitors. We are here as your children. And that is why you will bring us to your table in a moment. Would you bless this time and build us up that in our faith, we would continue to grow in our appreciation of your gracious heart for us in Christ. And it's in his name we pray, amen.